Welcome to today's podcast, where we engage in a critical dialogue with detransitioner Chloe Cole. In light of its importance, we're releasing the unedited video of our conversation, capturing the raw authenticity of Chloe's story and inviting you into an unfiltered exploration of the issues. We're also preparing to share the video to a recent forum we had with Chloe, followed by an edited audio version on Spotify, offering several ways to engage in the topic. As a father, I find Chloe's insights deeply personal and universally relevant, resonating with parents, legislators, and healthcare professionals alike. Her journey is a call to awareness and a call to action, urging us to embrace open and honest conversations about these complex challenges that our youth has been facing. Join us in this exploration as Chloe's bravery and truth provide us with a powerful lens to understand and navigate these critical issues. I hope that this dialogue with Chloe resonates with you as profoundly as it did with me. Chloe, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me here today. So we're going to get started, and I'd like to ask if you could share us the beginning of your journey, uh, particularly what led you to identify as transgender at such a young age, if you could share some of your childhood experiences with us and kind of what led up to that. Being the youngest of about five kids, I had two older brothers and two older sisters, and I was kind of in the middle in terms of being a tomboy and a girly girl. I really liked playing dress up and with dolls and whenever my sister would put makeup on me. Um, but I also enjoyed playing with my brother's toys as well. I liked being in their company. I always thought that they were really funny. I liked playing video games with them. The older I got, the more I liked associating with the boys around me. I could be considered, I guess, quite a bit of a, a tomboy. The older I got, like the less I liked purses and and makeup and having long hair. And I preferred to wear clothing more like what the boys around my age wore. I felt like I just related quite a bit more to my male peers. And my brothers, my boy cousins, my dad, more than my female family members. In a way, it felt kind of lonely because I felt like I couldn't really relate a whole lot to those women around me. It felt like, even though when I was younger, being a tomboy was something that I took pride in because I felt like it was something that set me apart from the other people around me. I started to wonder how it might how it might affect my worth as a woman. I felt like I wasn't really feminine enough in terms of the way that I looked or or acted that no man would ever want me because I wasn't curvy or or pretty or because I was boyish. When you say younger, Chloe, how old were you when you started to kind of, you said you liked to play with the, with the girly girl stuff and with the Barbies and the pet shop toys and whatnot. At what age did you start to veer towards being more tomboyish, do you think? I think roughly around the time that I started hitting puberty, so about like eight and nine. 
And you said that there was, um, you, you weren't sure if you could live up to the image that you were seeing about what a woman was supposed to be like. And where were you seeing those images and what was your influence there? Um, a lot of it was through media, especially social media, but also like what I was seeing on on TV, in shows, on the internet. It just always felt like there was a standard that I just could never meet up to. And this was as you were leading up towards puberty? Yeah. I feel like I grew up like in a very, just in a very over-sexualized environment in general. I had a lot of peers in elementary school who were very precocious, who were allowed to have a phone. I mean, as early as like first or second grade, right? And their parents were just not paying attention at all to what they were seeing on the screen. They would learn about a lot of things that, frankly, at the age we were, we should not have even known existed. And of course, because they were kids, they would talk about it all the time. And hearing just the way that boys would talk about the opposite sex, and especially sex and our bodies, it introduced these, these ideas to my mind that I had to be this way in order to be appealing, in order to be good as a woman, that my worth came from my body and my sexuality. And and these um, peers of yours, they were they were being exposed to pornography. Is that correct? Yes, and eventually I had an early exposure of my own as well. Right. How did that affect you? I feel like it very much distorted my views around sex itself, around how men and women are supposed to be. I was learning that sex was something that was purely for pleasure and fun rather than something made to solidify a loving married relationship rather than something that is serious that brings life into the world and is supposed to be as part of a loving union how did that affect your um, view of yourself and of gender and your journey i remember feeling as I went into like late middle school and early high schools, very left out because a lot of my friends were getting into their first relationships. A lot of them were already having sex in these relationships. And it made me feel like in some way, like I was behind, I was stunted. How do you think your later diagnosis as being on the spectrum when you look back, does that uh, make more sense to you, your challenge with social situations? Yeah, I mean, I had quite a bit of a struggle growing up with socializing, um, with making and maintaining friendships and understanding just how socialization works. I was pretty shy, but I was also very starved of, I guess, of connection with the people around me, as scared as I was of it. I mean, I was initially diagnosed with ADHD and medicated for it, but it's just nothing was really addressing it. And I feel like if I had been diagnosed with autism from a younger age and I'd been treated for it, it would have helped me greatly with 
my social life and with school. When I was in, I think about preschool and kindergarten, that was the first time that I tried, that my parents tried to get me diagnosed for, for autism. The response they got from the doctors was just, well, you know, you, your kid is, she's very smart. She's very smart for age. And she is well-developed verbally. She can read and write well. So we don't think she's on the spectrum. Their justification was basically that I wasn't stupid enough to be autistic, even though most kids, most people who are on the high-functioning end of the spectrum tend to be pretty intellectual people. Yeah, I, I can tell that about you at our forum. I thought, wow, this this young lady is probably the smartest person in the room. <laughs> you, you're so articulate, and um, you know you tell your story so well. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. So, what uh, what introduced you first to the the idea that you could be something other than a woman in the transgender community? I learned about it through the internet, specifically through. I think it was communities on Instagram. I I had heard the the word a few times on the internet and when like the adults in the room would talk about it or from TV, but it wasn't something that I really bothered to really look at until it was being presented to my face. When I was about 11 or 12 was when I got my first iPhone. One of the very first things I did was create a social media account because I wanted to do what everybody else my age was was doing, see what they were up to on there, see what I was missing out on. A lot of the posts that were recommended to me were based on my interests because that's just how social media algorithms work. They want to give you the posts that you want to be seen. Most of it at the time was stuff like books or comics, or cartoons that I watched, um, video games that I liked. But a lot of these communities of other people who enjoyed these things had kind of a dis- disproportionate amount of young people, like pre-adolescents to like early 20s, who identified as a part of the LGBT community. Many of them were gay or bisexual, and many of them were transgender or used alternative labels like non-binary or pansexual and it was just it was something that just drew a lot of my interest because it was all these these new words and phrases with which they were describing themselves it was very novel to me i started to look into it because it was just it was just so interesting the way that all these people would talk about their personal lives and about things like discovering themselves or finding a community. It was something that I think personally hit close to home for me. It was something that I wish that I had for myself as a girl who had been through a little bit of bullying in school, who felt like she could never really fit in. Being able to find a group that would accept me for who I was no matter how different I was, and even in appreciating my my differences was something that was almost like a foreign concept to me. And how how long after being introduced to that community and starting to feel that connection and community with um, the groups you found online, did you de- start to decide that maybe 
you were born in the wrong body or you were a boy in a girl's body. Yeah, and I wasn't really talking to anybody within these communities for a pretty long time. And so around the time that I started to actually get into medically transitioning, just watching these people, just observing them and listening to them, it made me feel like I was at home. It made me feel like for once there were people out there like me. So do you think that if you wouldn't have had been introduced to social media in these communities that do you think the trajectory would have went a different direction? Absolutely. I mean, if it weren't for the fact that not only that I, that I knew about this, but also had influence from the transgender community and learning these ideas, like just because somebody's born one way, they don't have to be that way for life and that some people are broken and their bodies need to be fixed so that they can be happy and whole as people. I would never have pursued that. I mean, there were times when before that I, I felt like I would be happier if I was a boy that life would just be better that way that I would better fit into a role like that than I would in a woman's role and that I would have looked better as a boy, that I would have been handsome and not just an ugly girl. But naturally, I would have, I think I would have grown out of it. Yeah, and that's that's what some of the studies suggest. And I know, you know, I've listened to some of your interviews leading up to this, and very fascinating was uh, Jordan Peterson's interview. And you had told me you learned a lot during that interview from him. Uh, very intelligent. And, and he talked about how normal that is for young women at the age you were to go through those feelings and that, you know, once you get through puberty, it's more than likely that you'll, you'll grow out of them. So how did you find that learning that, uh, how did that make you feel learning that that was pretty normal that, that what kids go through, you know? I mean, going through that interview in some ways it made me upset because it was just a reflection of how my psychology appointments were supposed to be that none of this should have happened he was one of the first few competent psychologists i'd ever spoken to in my life he wasn't focused on giving me what i needed what what i wanted he was talking through with me about my story about my history and really homing in on what it is, what it, what it was that I, that I needed. None of the therapists I had throughout the years had done that. It was, um, what you, I know that what you experienced was a firm and assist. It's like someone comes into the office, self-diagnosis, and instead of trying to figure out what's going on, it seemed like it was, oh yeah, okay, I can help you with that. And we'll just transition you. And uh, so how did you come out to your parents? I wanted to for a while, but I just wasn't really sure how to break that news to them. I was really scared of how they would react to it. It was just, it was a very intimidating idea to me. And so one day I saw somebody do it using, using a letter. They wrote a letter to their mother, describing their feelings, telling her that they wanted to be a boy. 
rather than a girl. I I took this idea. It was convenient because it would kind of give us all some time to decide how to re- how we would react, how we how we would respond to each other. It was like a comfortable distance before having to face it. And when they read it, they were pretty supportive initially, not trying to push me any particular way, but they wanted to allow me some room to kind of express and explore myself. And they wanted to accommodate me and help me feel comfortable however they could. Um, they were even trying to go along with my my new name and calling me their their son when talking to other people. But they also were not really sure how to go about this. They didn't know if what they were doing was right, really. And they wanted to get the help of maybe some professionals because they didn't know if they could provide that help to me. So they started doing their research. Dad kind of suspected that it was a mental health issue because of my my struggles in school and with socializing throughout my childhood. And he saw the connection pretty much right away. But they found out online that um, our healthcare provider at the time, Kaiser Permanente, was recommended as the top choice in our home state of California for caring for youth and adolescents who are struggling with gender dysphoria or want to transition. They assumed that help, that care, meant like mental health resources. They didn't think they didn't think it possible for me to be put on these treatments for so young. And that was not what they wanted for me at all. They didn't want me to be making any permanent decisions while I was still a child. And you were 12 at the time? I was 13. You were 13? At this point in time. Okay, then back to the um, initial visit. Your parents were seeking psychological help, help for you to deal with this issue you were having, but they didn't expect that it would lead down this pipeline to cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers and things like that. That was not what they were expecting at all, no. They thought that I would just be allowed to be a kid in the meanwhile, and then once I was an adult, at least at least 18 years, o- years old, then I would be a little bit more de- developed emotionally and psychologically and more capable of making any permanent decisions governing my my body. I mean, the therapy that I had wasn't really therapy. Like I had a lot of real issues in my life relating to school and socializing with my peers that were just completely ignored during this time. And it was all focused on my gender being the issue. Otherwise, nothing else in my life was really being addressed at all. So I, uh, I was reading the WPATH the other night, while, which is the standards of care for transgender issues or identity issues. And there was a real emphasis on informed consent. Do you feel like you had at all any informed consent or that you could even give informed consent at such a young age? No, I don't feel like I, they really made any effort to give me any sort of form, informed consent. But at the age that I was, I wouldn't have been able to. 
And I mean, legally, that is the case, which is why they require parents to sign off on these procedures. And my mom and dad did, but it was under duress. I don't consider it consent at all, regardless of whether these papers were signed, because my mom and dad were coerced into it. They were told that there wasn't really any other choice for me, that it was going to be pretty much either suicide or transition for me. They, the doctors cited like the high suicide um, rates in transgender populations. Um, I think the statistic they told my mom and dad was roughly about half. And they used that to convince them that transition was pretty much going to be the only treatment for me. Wow. Yeah, that had to be tough on them. I, I can't imagine what they went through personally. Like, I might have went through the process of socially transitioning and medically transitioning and going back and just the absolute hell on earth that all that was. But I, I can't imagine what it was like for my mom and dad watching me go through it and going through that as a family. I feel like they were just as hurt as I was personally. So from your first visits and et cetera, how did it come to, okay, puberty blockers and then lead to testosterone? And what were the effects you experienced with those medications and hormones? Yeah, when I started with the puberty blockers, it took about two weeks for them to take full effect. It started a very, the, the drop in estrogen in my body caused a period because that's how periods work. It was probably like the heaviest and most painful period I had had in, in my life up to that point. And it was already kind of embarrassing because like that was a part of myself that I already was very insecure about that I wanted to get rid of. Um, but after that, it was basically without a cycle and without any hormones in my body, after four years of being pubescent, I was in like a premature menopause of sorts. So I was experiencing symptoms that menopausal women experience, like um, hot flashes, um, these full body sensations of itching, tingling, burning. It was incredibly uncomfortable. And I was also very lethargic during this time because my body wasn't healthy. There were no hormones. There weren't really any sex hormones in my blood supply. And I was, it was, I was on them for, I think like a, a few months. I can't remember the exact timeline, but it was just a horrible experience. And pretty much every, every waking up every morning was like a countdown to the day that I would finally start on the next intervention, which was the testosterone. What did the doctors say about the puberty blockers? How, how did they describe them? Did they describe this, the, uh, potential side effects and ex things that you would experience? Yeah. So the narrative that you often hear from a lot of these like big name trans activists is that puberty blockers just cause like a temporary stasis that allow kids to just wait 
to make the decision on which puberty they want, right? Which is not, obviously, it's not how it works at all. You can't just stop a natural body bodily process and not expect nature to fight back. There's no guarantee that puberty is going to start back up normally after after starting on blockers, especially after having been on them for years. But that was not the narrative that was presented to me at all by my own doctors. Um, they never talked about irreversibility or anything like that with me. We're, they were going into it with a mindset of, well, we're just going to, we're just doing this before she starts on the hormones to, to just to clear out the, the hormones to make way for the, for the androgens that we were going to put her on. And they described, it's hard to remember those appointments because they were so long ago, but some of the side effects were talked about, like the, the hot flashes and I think potential effects on my bone health. But I mean, other than that, like with all of my treatments, the list of potential side effects was not really comprehensive. You can't really expect a child to make proper informed consent on stopping a natural, in fact, a, a mandatory process that their body has. Yeah, and that's kind of why we have all these laws for youth. You know, you can't get a tattoo or smoke a cigarette or drink or join the military. <laughs> In California, you can't even go into a tanning booth if you're under the age of 18, regardless of whether your parent signs off on it. But you can go on puberty blockers at 11, 12, 13. Right. You can, mod you can modify your body in other ways, but you're not allowed to, to get a tan. Sorry. That's interesting. So from there, then you, were, you said you were looking forward to the uh, testosterone, right? I was. Um, I mean, I going into my eighth grade year was incredibly awkward because I was trying to present myself as a boy, trying to dress like them. Um, but everybody around me knew me since like fourth or fifth grade. They all knew that I was a girl. I would get like a lot of weird looks and, and weird treatment just because I was presenting myself differently. It was kind of a big source of insecurity for me because I wanted everybody to know me as a boy. I felt like the solution was to try and look like any other boy my age in my face and my body and in my voice. Then they stopped treating me like this. I'd just be, be one of them. And within the transgender community, seeing how just how happy these people seem to be when they started on these interventions. I felt like it would make me feel better that it would fix my problems and that I would actually become a boy by doing this. So you had this idea that you could really yes. become a boy, that you could really yes. change your gender completely. Yes. I had, I, I believe that I actually was a boy somehow despite being in a female body, that I had the brain of a boy and that was why I felt this way about myself, why I was so boyish, why I was a tomboy. I thought it was, it was because I had the brain 
of the opposite sex, which is like a common myth going on around in the transgender community that people experience gender dysphoria because they actually have brain patterns that are similar to that of the other sex. And you say that's a misconception? Yes. The studies that they cite around this, I think, are... I can't remember the specifics, but I think they were actually studies on people who experience homosexual attraction rather than, than gender dysphoria, or they don't control for people who, who do experience that. Uh, yeah, there was, um, I remember that at, at our forum, there was a lesbian couple there that were very supportive of you. And one of their, um, the woman that spoke was very knowledgeable about the whole background of of this and one of the things she talked about was how a lot of kids that would just normally grow up to be you know gay or something are now being seduced into this idea that because they're attracted to the opposite sex that they're somehow in the wrong body and they're transgender yeah and that wasn't something that i really experienced myself personally i mean there are like a few times that i was attracted to somebody like another girl at school that I'd have a crush on her or that I'd like I had a crush on a female celebrity but it wasn't really anything that I had really any serious feelings around and I never really wanted to pursue anyways because I'm still I'm I'm pretty much straight but I did I I had quite a few friends um who were lesbian and gay growing up who ended up falling into the trap of transitioning and believing that they were the opposite sex. And I think a lot of it has to do with trauma around being bullied or being abused by their family members for, for feeling this way. They feel like because they, many of them were not gender, were not really necessarily conforming to what was expected of somebody of their sex. Uh, many of them were tomboys and effeminate men. Um, and because they they felt like they were broken, like they were some sort of monster that they had to change, they had to become somebody else entirely in order to be okay. Yeah. What were the what were the effects of the testosterone on you? I mean, mentally, it was a total change from just being on the blockers and being devoid of any of any hormones in my body. Like I felt amazing. I had this, it was almost like a stimulus in how it made me feel I finally had energy again. And I was very energetic and I even started to feel like a, a bit of a, I was very confident. I started feeling very competitive and it's kind of did change the way that I experienced certain emotions. Like I felt like I had higher highs and lower lows. Um, negative emotions were a little bit more difficult to deal with in a healthy manner, especially like sadness or frustration. I couldn't really process that anymore. It was very difficult to get, it was very difficult to cry and I could do it for a very long time without any sort of release. There also was the steep increase in my sex drive, which proved pretty troublesome. 
like I, it was something that obviously I wouldn't want to talk about with the people around me. Right. Because that's, that's pretty awkward. I wouldn't want to talk about that with the, the adults who I was seeing for therapy or for these treatments about it, because why would I want to be talking with an adult about sex? That's just weird. But so you it was really a very real struggle to was, talk to about it. No. And it was, it was like a very real frustration for me. I basically became like, like a hypersexual because I didn't know how to deal with these feelings and nothing luckily physically came of it. But there were quite a few times when I had been groomed sexually by older adults over over the internet and i wanted to feel like i had some sort of purpose as a person that somebody loved me and i thought that the way to do that was with my body and with with sex basically was this through instagram or what was it through um, it was largely through Instagram. I remember there actually was an instance where like somebody had sent one of these people one of my like my my way because they were sick of hearing me talk about how how lonely, how depressed I felt. While my friends were starting to get like their their first relationships, I felt like I was a little behind because I mean transitioning severely limited my dating my dating pool. I now looked like pretty much any, any other boy my age, and I wasn't bad looking. I mean, there were quite a few girls who had crushes on me, but I didn't really return the feelings. I didn't really have any interest in pursuing them because I was still largely attracted to men. And I also didn't really want to pursue this because I I knew that I wasn't really a boy. I didn't really want to break any girls' hearts or disappoint anybody, so I just never bothered. It was It was quite a bit of a, a lonely feeling. I think the effects of testosterone on me emotionally and on my sex drive were something that definitely exacerbated those feelings. The physical changes, they came within like the, the next like two weeks to the the first month. And the first one, the most immediate one was definitely the the drop in my voice, which was actually quite deep for a while. It's a lot higher than it, than when it was. Um while I was a few years, few years on testosterone, it's luckily lightened up since. But I actually had a deep, a, a deeper voice compared to, like my my some of my teachers, pretty much all of the boys my age. The effects to like my face and body were more gradual. Like my my jaw, my brow bone, my nose all became more and more angular. My shoulders started growing wider. Started developing quite a bit of muscle mass, especially in my upper body. And that was something that, I mean, it felt great. Like I looked fit as somebody who had body image issues for a very long time. It felt nice just to be able to change and have even a little bit of control over myself. It was a pretty unhealthy way of doing that. Now, is that something that they told you you'd have to do for the rest of your life? Taking testosterone? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would have. I mean, after 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 years of being on it, my body probably, my reproductive system would have been compromised. My body probably wouldn't be able to really produce 
any sex hormones on its own at all. And I would have to be dependent on one of the two main sex hormones for life if I were to keep doing this forever. And how did you go from, you know, puberty blockers to testosterone to, you know, having a double mastectomy at 15? So going through the the physical changes of testosterone, I mean, it felt great, but everybody, I was still in, I was still like in the second half of my eighth grade year. I didn't really bother with going any further because I just wanted to wait till high school when I'd be going to a bigger school. Not everybody would know me. I would be able to have like a real restart to my social life. And most people probably wouldn't know that I actually was a girl. I still didn't really make any effort to hide my breasts because I, because of this, because of this understanding until I had been sexually assaulted in the classroom by one of my classmates that definitely changed my perspective quite a bit. It added an element of trauma to my tradition because now I was afraid of ever being recognized as a woman ever again, because now it felt like I would be unsafe if anybody other knew. I wanted to protect myself and the situation itself went unresolved because I, I didn't feel like I, I could report it to anybody. If I brought it up to my parents, they would bring it up to the school. And if we brought it up to, to the school, I thought it would be a losing battle because we were already struggling with my education, with an IEP that I had that the, the provisions of which they just didn't really care about making any effort to abide by. If they didn't care about helping me with my education, how could I expect them to help me feel safe after being assaulted by one of their students? Did any of your teachers or peers know anything about this? That's the thing. I don't know. The classroom was crowded, probably about like 30 to 40 people in there. So somebody probably had to see it, but nobody responded. Nobody looked my way. Nobody, it seemed like nobody either noticed or cared. And what happened? Nothing. Mm. Nothing. So I felt like I had to defend myself. That was when I made the decision to start fighting, to start hiding my, my breasts, because I was so scared of something like that ever happening to me again. And this individual um, had been bullying you before? Yes. He was somebody who had been targeting me throughout the school year. Pretty much everybody just looked the other way when he did. There was even like a group of girls who told me like, oh, he's never going to hurt you. But he did. Badly. Is, do you mind talking about what he did? Um, I mean, before that, he would like, he would push me, like he'd, he'd trick me. Sometimes like he would even like be spitting on me or like throwing papers at me while we were in class together. And this time, like, he walked up to me, he looked me right in the eyes, and he squeezed one of my breasts. That's terrible. And so you were, you began breast binding then. Okay. Yeah, I started using a binder, um, which is basically like a compression garment for the breasts. And while it felt, I felt secure while I was in it. Like it was a nice disguise, I guess, for my chest. 
I was very cognizant of the fact that it was just that, a disguise. And so every day after I came home from school, um, in eighth grade and high school, I take it back off because I had it on for about eight hours. Um, I'd worn it in PE whenever I'd work out, whenever I'd go on a run or or swim. It just it was kind of uncomfy how it just how it just sticks to your skin. Once I took it off, those that part of my body was still there. You know, it was something that I became more and more insecure about with each day. Um, as the rest of my body was masculinizing and changing. It's not like these were going away anytime soon. I wish that I would be able to take off my shirt like any other boy and just be like them because I thought that I was one of them. And I, I got sick of wearing this this binder every day for, for years on end. So eventually I started considering surgery. And that was in my sophomore year. Okay. And how did how did that progress um from from deciding, hey, I want to I'm tired of chest binding and et cetera. And I want to look like the rest of the boys. How did you approach that subject with your physicians or your parents? I believe that I talked about it first with a therapist. There was about like a year long period where I went without therapy because like, okay, great. Like I started testosterone. So that part of my life is, is done. And I'm moving on to the, to the next one. I'm going to be a boy and I'm, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be great. It's going to be incredible. I'm finally going to be the person I always was supposed to be. Well, it actually got worse over the course of my freshman and sophomore year of high school. There was a bit of a honeymoon period. With all the changes to my body and to my social life with finally being able to find friends and feel like I was part of a group, being recognized as one of the boys Eventually, it all just became normal to me, just another part of my life. I was still lonely. I was still without a purpose, but now I was destroying my mind and body. So I was, I felt like I was becoming more and more distance from my body and myself every day. And even from the people around me, I felt like now I was being expected to just be, be tough I couldn't talk about my my hardships. I couldn't talk about anything really intimate with the people around me because now I was supposed to be a guy. And that was a very tough adjustment for me to make, to deal with. And with with being on testosterone, I was more unstable emotionally, psychologically. I was a little bit more ballsy. I started to experiment with uh, with substances, um, with drinking, smoking, marijuana, and so on. It was just destroying me. And by the time that I was in my sophomore year, um, I was, for pretty much the first time in my life, I was feeling suicidal. I wanted to be gone. And somebody reported me to the school office, I think because I had talked about it with them. They called back home, and my mom and dad started sending me to a therapist again because of this. Um, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, um, being treated for suicidal ideation and social anxiety, with medication even. I just kept getting worse. I just kept going to this downward spiral. And so it's safe to say that... And all that was completely ignored. 
it's safe to say that things didn't get better with transitioning and testosterone and all those things. No, um, maybe temporarily, which is why it made it so difficult to figure out what the what the problem was, because there was that period when it did temporarily give me this false sense of happiness without any substance. Those these feelings that I was struggling with, these real issues with my mental health, with my life, were just completely ignored during the consultations for the surgery. Never, nobody ever really stopped to consider, is she like mentally fit for this? Is this a good time for us to even be considering this? I was just allowed to go through it. And you mentioned at our forum something about a top surgery class or a top surgery seminar at the hospital or something like that? Yeah, after my first appointment with the surgeon, me and my mom and dad were referred to a seminar within the hospital building um, for kids and for their families to learn more about what the surgery would entail. It basically was just like a propaganda class to talk about the different types of incisions and how how great these and the people were heading it were adults who had undergone the surgeries themselves. While it sort of gave me the sense of, well, it's great not to be alone. Like, this is normal. This is how other people feel, too. One of the, the first things that I noticed when I sat down in that class and I looked around was that pretty much every other kid in there looked younger than I was, looked way more feminine, and basically looked like they were still girls. So obviously they were not very far into the process of transitioning at all. And yet they were already seeking surgery. How many kids were in this class and parents? Probably about like 12 to 15 other families, I think. Interesting. Do you think that there'd be a different reaction if they called it a double mastectomy class instead of a top surgery class? It definitely makes it sound a lot more cutesy and a lot less serious than what it actually is. It's a euphemism. Right. So then from there, you went to scheduling a surgery to, to basically have a double mastectomy, which they call top surgery. Yes. And I went under the knife um, the summer after my sophomore year of high school had ended. And this was during a point in time. This was like early to mid-2020. I live in California, so you know, like the, the measures for quarantining during COVID were, were pretty strict. There were a lot of cases then of people not being allowed to undergo procedures that were considered elective, even if they were potentially like life-saving or greatly would improve a patient's quality of life. I had perfectly healthy breasts. They knew this. They did an examination before and afterward of the tissue before incinerating it. I had not even a risk of developing breast cancer. They were removing perfectly healthy tissue, and yet it wasn't considered elective. So it was, in, it was covered by insurance then? Yeah. And I mean, it would be anyways, because California mandates that by law. All these, all these procedures are supposed to be covered by insurance. And then, so in a way, it's, it, it does incentivize patients to go through it because they're told that 
it's life-saving that it'll help them in becoming they're they're told that this treatment is a part of their identity and they can go through it without really any costs. So what can you describe the surgery and what it entails? So I got one of the most common types of incisions. They call it double incision with nipple grafts, meaning that they cut into the breast, they take the tissue out, and they also take off the areolas, resize them, and then they put it onto a different position on the chest that they say is a more masculine positioning. The grafts are the worst part of the surgery. They have quite a bit of complications often associated with them. Um, which I ended up developing complications of my own down the line um, that I will get into in a bit. But I remember I was actually, um, my surgeon was presenting two different types of incisions to me at first, the double incision with the grafts and a less invasive procedure. But when I started pushing for the less invasive one, he backtracked and he said, oh, no, that's not a good idea. That's actually an experimental procedure, which is kind of funny looking back on it because every single part of this is experimental. But I had to go with uh, the most invasive form of the surgery. And the post-op process was uh, it's pretty gnarly. Uh, you know, you can't, because it's like a major surgery in your upper body and your chest where there's like a lot of tissues connecting it really severely limits your mobility for quite a bit. It takes like about like a year to regain full mobility. I wasn't really able to lift up my arms until I think around like the two to three month mark. So I had to have my mom help me, especially in those like first few weeks around the house, cooking for me, um, helping with chores. And once I got the stitches taken out, I started having to take care of the wounds and the dressings and redo them like before and after like every every shower and bath. That was uh, that was a trip having to take off the bandages and look down at this absolute battlefield that my chest was, looking like looking at all the the surger the surgical markings, the the scars, the the grafts themselves while they were healing. That was taking a huge toll on me mentally. Do you feel like your physicians prepared you for that at all? I mean, I was told that I was told how the post-op process would be, but I don't think anything could have prepared me for it other than like actually going through it. It doesn't really hit you just how crazy it is until you're actually doing it. And it's, it's hard just to look at. I, I think I started to experience grief over the loss of my femininity, not only of my breasts, but also of things I had while I was living as a girl. And I thought, I just assumed that this depression was just a part of being early in the post-op process. But it never really got better, I noticed. And I started to struggle more and more and more. I would sometimes wear like my old girl clothes. I would sometimes secretly go to like the uh, the drugstore, pick up some makeup, and wear it. But I hated looking at myself. I hated living like this, and I just didn't know what to do with myself for the longest time because I was so deep into it. I didn't think that there would be any way out. 
but I wanted to so badly to stop. Were you seeing a therapist at this time at all? Or? Yeah, I was seeing a therapist at this, at this time for my depression and social anxiety, but I wasn't really getting any better in therapy. Um, and I didn't really tell anybody about these feelings for a long time because I didn't know how it was difficult to verbalize. And it was also hard to admit. It felt like no matter what, it didn't help to talk about things because I thought that nobody and nothing could help me. It wasn't until um, I was studying psychology that I got to a, a chapter that was about um, like child rearing and motherhood and parenting that it really made me stop and think about these things for the first time in my life. Um, sometimes those things were talked about very briefly in my consultations um, for for hormones and for the surgery and such. But kids don't really think about having a family of their own, not until they're near or in adulthood, really, because that's a lot to expect out of a out of a person that is still growing up themselves. I thought that I didn't want to have kids because I was one, and also because I had these horrible preconceptions about what being a woman and mother would be like that was something that like just the the, the the traditional role of of women was something that was very devalued throughout a lot of my um my upbringing not necessarily by my my parents but just like the messages that i was getting around around womanhood in general were very negative but now that all this is being presented to my face and in such detail it woke me up i realized i wanted to be a mother that one day I might want to have children of my own. I want them to be biological children. I felt like I had a responsibility to continue the human race. I wanted to raise a loving family, but this could have taken all that away from me. Now I don't even have breasts to feed my children with. I felt like I was a monster that I had taken away things from myself, not only myself, but also my future family. It killed me on the inside. And you were 16 at this time? or Yeah, I was 16. This was less than a year after I had underwent surgery. So how did you deal with that? How did you deal with all those uh, feelings and um, the, the weight of that, of of feeling like you'd been de deprived of your womanhood and the possibility of being a mother. I couldn't. I didn't know how to deal with this. I was basically non-functional for months, really. I spent a lot of my days just kind of like in bed, not really doing anything. Um, at this point in time, like I couldn't even focus on my studies anymore because I was just in so much pain. It took a while for me to admit to myself that I regret transition, that I wanted to stop. But even after I stopped the testosterone and stopped calling myself a boy, I didn't really know what to do with myself. I was completely disoriented in pretty much every way. 
Um, I lost my support from the transgender community as soon as I announced that I was detransitioning and started talking about the regret. I lost this community, almost like this sort of second family that I had just because I stopped. That was a very painful loss for you to deal with. And I didn't really know what to do with myself for a while. I thought that I was going to relate to those those trans women. Because I too was coming back from, from being a boy and becoming a girl, just like them, right? They hated me. They all hated me. What kind of response? I was like get? nothing to me. It was like I was nothing to them. Um, they started to... A lot of them were really just picking on me, telling me, like, you look better as a boy. Like, how are you going to be a woman ever again if you don't have your breasts anymore? Like, it's not like you're going you're to be pretty ever again. Some of them started telling me, started shaming me for talking about it, saying, like, oh, you're such a spoiled piece of crap. You're such a, you're such a brat. Like, you didn't deserve parents who loved you enough to, to care about you and let you transition. You stole resources from us in doing so, by the way, and erroneously transitioning. And you should stop talking about it because you're not helping anybody. You're making our lives worse. You're making us uncomfortable. You're potentially scaring people out of getting the treatment that they might need as people who are really transgender. It's your fault that you didn't know that you were that you were fake, that you weren't a real transgender person. You have nobody to blame but yourself. You're not a victim. So suck it up, basically. And for a while, I just stopped talking about it because... How was I supposed to deal with all that? Especially as like a hurt little 60-year-old girl. Nobody had ever treated me like that in my life. They're being so hurtful about this thing that was so deeply personal and traumatic to me. I didn't want to deal with that treatment. And I certainly didn't want to help them. I didn't want to hurt these people that I thought I was supposed to uphold. I also started to try and figure out just what had just happened. Um, I pondered it for quite a while. And eventually I came up with a word in my head to describe it. I went through a transition, right? But I decided to stop. So it must have been a detransition. And I wondered if this was something that has happened before. I, I just looked up the word detransition. One of the first few results that I got was the online Reddit community around it. And I never really posted it, but I lurked around it for a little bit before I decided to go into some of the discussion servers on Discord about it. And talking to these people directly, it was like a huge wake-up call. Everything that I had ever known about transitioning, everything that I had been told by my doctors by the transgender community was a lie. And in talking to these these other people who were further into the process, and many of whom were, actually really all of them were adults, it made me feel the sense of hope that I could get better, that I could live a normal life from this, and get stronger every day and find a new normal for myself. It also made me feel like I had this responsibility because there there were thousands of people out there who have been through exactly what I have 
the ones who I had been speaking to were all adults. All of them had gone through it while they were adults. But I had this intuition just kind of gnawing at me that there were other children and teenagers out there like me as well. I felt like I just, I had to get myself together that I had to start talking about what happened to me because I couldn't bear the thought of any more children going through this. That's very, and I, it was around that same time that I, there, there was a while when I couldn't even call myself a girl because I had lost, I felt like I had lost so much of it and that I didn't even, I didn't even deserve to call myself that. Eventually I just realized it's only natural. It's not like I could have actually changed my sex. That's something that's going to stick with me for life. I started seeing it as a gift that my mom and dad had given to me at birth. And I saw my name the same well, the same way as well. I really wanted to stick with the name that I chose for myself, which I called myself Leo. I thought it was a pretty cool name and, you know, it wasn't too far off from my birth name, just like a few letters taken out of it. But as uncomfortable as I felt with my birth name, Chloe, I felt like I just owed it to my mom and dad because that too was a gift from them. Well, it's a beautiful name. <laughs> you have a beautiful smile. <laughs> Thank you. I never really thought that I would grow to be comfortable with it, but eventually I did. And sure. I'm glad I stuck with it. You know, when you were, when you had decided to stop the testosterone, what, um, what did your doctors have to say about it? What kind of advice did you get from your psychiatrist or psychologist? Um, I mean, I would talk to my psychologist and the gender specialist who referred to the surgery about like the, the psychological pain of transitioning and detransitioning. Um, but my endocrinologist, when I went back to her about it um, and told her that I was stopping, it was almost like she didn't really care. Like I, I, I didn't get any advice really on how to stop. I just had to figure it out pretty much all on my own, which was difficult. Because I'm I'm dealing with basically unscrewing my my body and trying to figure out what to do from here without really any professional medical knowledge. And none of the professionals in the room are helping me with it. So they didn't uh they didn't help you at all through your detransition? No guidance at all. Not psychologically, not with the physical process of detransitioning. None. I had to be my own doctor and figure things out for myself, which was horrible because I had some really nasty complications, um, some of which I'm still dealing with today. When I stopped the testosterone, I just went off cold turkey because I didn't know any better. And I also, it was traumatic, even just like looking at the vial, at the syringe and going through with the, the injections. I didn't want to be having these changes to my body anymore. I didn't want to have that hormone to my system anymore. I wanted it to stop. But within like two months, like 
I was incredibly sickly. Um, I dropped like about like 25, 30 pounds. Like I was basically a bag of skin and bones, not eating, no appetite, um, always getting sick and like having like really bad, like digestive and urinary tract issues. It was also hell emotionally because of like the, the rapid changes in my, my sex hormones and the lack thereof for a little bit. And also just like the, like realizing how traumatic it was and trying to navigate it, like the social ramifications of detransitioning, especially because like people thought that I was a transgender woman. They didn't actually think that I was a woman because I'd been on testosterone for so long. And because I'd been presenting myself as a boy for so long that they had, they never knew. Nobody knew. I was not really getting any guidance through any of that either. And when I talked about the regret with my gender specialists, it was just so infuriating how it felt like my experiences were being devalued and that she was trying to keep me in the mindset of being transgender soul. She would say stuff like, well, it's it's another transition of its own, right? When really it's just a rejection of transitioning at all. She said, it's just a part of your gender journey. Losing parts of my my body, losing a huge chunk of my sexuality as a woman and aspiring wife. It's all just a part of some journey, right? Wow. So yeah, so the the trans community rejected you and ridiculed you and bullied you into silence, basically. Yes. Your doctors didn't help you at all. And what it appear, appears to me is you were kind of put into this pipeline of, you know, we're transitioning. I mean, that was the only option. Yes, there's a pipeline to it, but not back from it. Right. No help with detransitioning. But this detransitioning community you found, um, how helpful were they? I don't know if I really would have... I think it would, it would have taken a, long, a much longer time for me to start calling myself a woman again. I don't know if I would have ended up retransitioning or if I would be where I am today. They were, they were a pretty important part of my healing, of realizing what had happened to me, of being deprogrammed. But I think if it also weren't for my family... I don't know if I would have even made it out alive. Wow. If I didn't have that love and human connection around me, which was very scarce at that time as I was going through it, I don't think I would have gotten out of it. And so that suicidal idea that they threatened your parents with really didn't come until after you had been on testosterone and and you were having so many conflicting um, emotions and chemicals and things going on in your body, and and uh, you had kind of gone down that other path. Right. I mean, 
puberty wasn't going to kill me. Puberty would have been the solution. And if they just let me grow up and be the happy, healthy young woman, if they just let me figure myself out rather than just gratifying me, I would have been okay. None of this was necessary. It's it's hard to hear that. You know, we see this going on in our society right now and it's your story is so important. How did how did you go from uh telling your parents and going off testosterone and I'm gonna detransition to you said you had that feeling inside that you needed to speak out. When did that start and how did that start? How did you find your voice and when did you start speaking on it? Um it was I think about like a year or maybe a little less after I made the decision to stop transitioning. I started doing it just on like a, a small like personal Twitter account that I don't really think would like get any like grab a whole lot of attention. I certainly did not expect to be building a a platform. I just thought like, you know, like I'll just reach out to maybe like a few thousand people and I hope that my story can can help. I was still going through high school at the time. I was still finishing up my senior year and I didn't really expect it to take off at all. But pretty soon I had like a I had reporters reaching out to me. I had a lot of parents reaching out to me, thanking me for talking about what happened, um, for giving them hope about their families and asking me for for help with their situations. And it just, it really woke me up to how, how real this is, how, just how common it is. Eventually I got asked to speak on some legislation. And from then on, like things really picked up and I saw that if I pursue this, like I could, I could help other people. I could stop what happened to me from happening to to other children to thousands of other people and other families and hopefully i could even encourage other people and especially the the other kids who have been hurt by this to to start speaking out as well and since then i've i don't think i could count how many events i've been to or spoken at but a bunch of other detransitioners have come out into the spotlight talking about their own experiences and I mean just the whole the whole journey that this has been in in talking about it I've it's helped me not only process what happened to me but also to connect with the world around me to grow as a person and to build those these relationships with these other men and women and, and families and other detransitioners you're so you tell your story so well. I have all these questions, but you just keep answering them before I can ask them. <laughs> it's a it's a really, really been simple for me on my end. Um, what uh, what about your spiritual journey? You know, you talked about. I've heard you talk about God and and where where did that? How did that evolve in your youth? What was it like? Or I sh- when you were younger and transitioning versus how it's evolved through your detransitioning. 
when I was a kid, I was pretty much atheistic or agnostic throughout most of my upbringing. Um, my mom and dad brought me to church up until I was about like five years old. Eventually, they just uh, they stopped doing that. And I felt like that kind of created a little hole in my life that made me struggle a little bit more with my identity, with my convictions and values. And transitioning kind of filled that hole. It was like a religion in itself. It gave me a sense of purpose, a purpose, purpose, and and of of happiness and temporary temporary fulfillment. But after I lost it, I had to consider: where is my identity going to come from now? Where is my worth going to? To come from. I mean, in my adolescence, like I started to really wonder um, about my spiritual beliefs, but it was something that I hadn't really pursued for for a long time until I was uh, a lot of friends that I was making after I detransitioned. Many of them were were Christian, and in in talking with them and associating with them and in speaking at churches. I mean, it just really started to to make me think. Like, I, I don't, I didn't, I personally don't think that I could have gotten out of what I did without being guided, without being protected. Like, I just don't think that it's humanly possible. I think that there even was purpose in going through those painful experiences. It's shaped me into the woman I am today. Everything is just how it's supposed to be. I'm being watched and guided and loved by a loving God. This belief is something that it gives me purpose. It gives me a reason to wake up every day and work as hard as I do. And it gives me purpose beyond what's what's here in the world. Because nothing here is permanent. It's all going to be gone one day. I don't know when I'm going to go. But it's going to happen one day. And I have to consider what's going to happen next. Where will I be going? That's something that I have to work towards. Wow. Very profound. And you're 19. (laughs) Very profound. So, and you've kind of explained it, but you've bravely shared your story in various public forums, uh, testifying before Congress. What motivates you to continue speaking out despite the challenges and backlash you faced? And I think you've touched on it a little bit, but if you could expound on your why. There is that spiritual element to it, and that. I think that transgenderism is a godless ideology. It goes against everything that we're taught about the world, about humanity, that we can just change ourselves, that we can just change who we are, that we can just spit in the face of nature and creation without it spitting back. It's part of a very 
anti-human movement that is trying to tear down everything that makes humanity and the world good. Tearing apart men and women, families, children, and making those connections with other parents, families, um, and other people who have been hurt by this. Knowing what they've been through and the pain that they experience daily. It makes me want to fight. It makes me want to fight for them, to protect them, to to make sure that nobody else ends up like them, that nobody else is hurt like this. How do you hope your story and advocacy will influence and um, the conversation around gender identity and youth mental health? I think that in any case, transitioning should not be an option at all for anybody under the age of 18. It's an adult decision to make. It's an adult lifestyle. It's, it's not appropriate for children. You can't, there is no reason to manipulate a child to lie to them about who they are fundamentally, to mutilate and sterilize them in pursuit of a lie by teaching them that they can just turn away from the truth, that they can change who they are on the outside in order to make change on the inside. You're weakening them both physically and mentally. You're not preparing them for the world. You're just teaching them that they have to get what they want whenever they can. And by not allowing them to develop fully, sexually, physically, psychologically, emotionally, you're depriving them of a chance of having a fulfilling adulthood. And that's incredibly cruel. We have to show these kids love. We have to show compassion for these real struggles that they're going through. That doesn't mean that we just give them what they want. That's an important message. Um, and it's so your story is so important and what you're doing is so important. Who is Chloe Cole at her core? I definitely feel like there is, there's a few parts of myself that I don't really feel like I really get the chance to to show publicly. I'm very I'm very artistic at heart. I love doing illustration. Um I've gotten into making bracelets as like a like a fun little thing. I love fashion. I love designing clothing and coordinating outfits together. Um I love doing makeup and I'd say I'm pretty I'm pretty whimsical at heart I, I just i just i love going out and exploring and seeing wherever it'll it'll take me i just i love having fun i love being with my friends i love being with my family i love spending time with them that's fantastic um what are your thoughts on love and how has your journey influenced these thoughts my thoughts on love that's very complicated i think it's um it's Definitely not what it's made out to be today. Um, a lot of people, I think, I feel like a lot of people now, especially within my generation, they mistake 
lust for love. Or they think that the loving thing to do is just to give somebody what they want always rather than stopping about what is stopping to think and consider what somebody might really need, even if that's not necessarily something that they that they like or want in that moment. I think that if you really love somebody, it'll be tough on them. Love isn't supposed to be be easy. But I think that the most worthwhile things in the world also tend to be the most difficult. In light of your experiences, how do you define happiness, Chloe? I mean, happiness, it's something that can come from the simplest things. I remember driving home from the airport the other day and on the side of the road, I saw like a, a little pumpkin patch and it just, it kind of made my day. It was just, I thought it's so cute. It just, it's just a little, it's just a little patch, but I think it had also come from things that are much deeper than that from hard work, from something. I think true happiness comes from putting effort into something and seeing the fruits of your labor come out. And I feel like I've definitely found happiness in in what I'm doing now as I'm starting to see this this movement that I'm part of make make progress in the in the country, in the world. Having the work that I and my friends and the other people that I worked with start to really to pay off. There's not really any any feeling quite like that. That's amazing. And and it is paying off. And I see, like the other night um, at our forum, after our forum, I mean, the amount of appreciate, appreciation that people had for your courage and your story and for the changes that you're making. Um, it was amazing just to see that. What message or advice would you like to share as we're wrapping up for families and young people who might be currently navigating a similar experience? I mean, I think for any parents, I would tell them that you have to be very cognizant. You have to be very active in your child's life to always be a step ahead of your children, to know what they're looking at, who they're interacting with, to be the biggest influence in their lives. To not let outside influences get to them before you do. Um, your children are going to learn about this somehow. Whether it be in school, from a teacher, in the curriculum, from their peers, from other students, um, from a guidance counselor, or from the internet. They are going to find out about it. And it's up to you to teach them the truth. To teach them how to discern between the truth and fantasy for other adults try to, to get in the way between you and them. A lot of these kids, I feel like, they struggle with their self-worth and their identity because they don't really have much of a community around them. Many of them don't really feel like they're very close to their families or they're getting bullied at school and they want to find that, that identity that community 
through other means. Many of them turn to the internet and they'll find it. But that's how they get introduced to unhealthy ideas like this. This idea that their their worth as a person comes from superficial things like their body or the way that they looked, that, that they look, or from their sexuality. It should be instilling in them that their identity comes from their purpose, from what they have to to give to the family, their community around them. And you should be working on that with them by encouraging them to build their skills and their hobbies and to find that community with people around them in the real world, which is why I feel like things like sports, school clubs, and community service are especially important for for children. It gives them that sense of community. It gives them something to to build, a team to work with, and a spot in their community. Wow. I've said wow several times during this interview. You blow me away. I mean, that message is was so powerful and so important for people to hear. And, you know, I want to thank you for joining us and for being such a guiding light in this conversation that's so crucial right now. It's your voice and the people that you're inspiring and the other folks that are joining you that are going to make such a big difference. And what you have, what you have to say, it really needs to be part of the conversation. So, Chloe, thank you so much. God bless you in your journey. And, you know, we're all behind you for sure. So thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you. As we reflect on our conversation with Chloe Cole, we're reminded of the profound impact that one voice can have. Chloe's story shared amidst the complex terrain of identity and society highlights the resilience and transformative power that we all possess. Her journey is a beacon of courage and truth. We're now expanding our explorations into visual media, adding to our audio discussions on Spotify and other platforms with engaging video interviews on our YouTube channel and X. This new avenue offers a more immersive experience of these enlightening conversations. I encourage you to join us both listening and watching these unfolding stories. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on X and our audio platforms to stay connected with our series of deep and impactful dialogues. Thank you for being with us today for this insightful session with Chloe Cole. Your engagement in this journey of understanding is deeply valued. Stay curious and open-hearted and join us next time as we explore more topics that touch upon our shared human experience.